We're on a Just Jesus journey through the book of Mark. A family commitment is going to take me away next weekend, uh, but uh, Pastor Carter will be, uh, who did announcements a few minutes ago, he will be continuing the series from somewhere in chapter 11, but we come today to Mark chapter 10. And I want to talk about leaving and receiving. It's, it's a highly confrontative moment here. And uh, sometimes this passage leaves us more, with more questions than answers. But uh, I think the uncomfortable part of it is it gets right to our hearts. Now, when it comes to that word receiving, leaving and receiving, uh, receiving from God, we have a biblical word for that. It's called grace. Grace. We've sensed his grace. And we pray, let the wind of your spirit blow. And all that God wants to do, we call that grace. You can't earn grace. You can't deserve grace. But when I was a college student, I read a, what's become a Christian classic by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called The Cost of Discipleship. And he talks about how we tend to cheapen grace. He said, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. We're at the center, not Jesus. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. It's the kind of grace that says, I can be number one and I can delude myself into thinking that Jesus is number one at the same time in my life. But costly grace, he says, is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Now, some of Jesus' followers, his disciples, the disciple is a follower, a learner and a follower. Among Jesus' original disciples were fishermen who literally left their nets. They left their livelihood to follow after Jesus. So what's going to happen now in Mark is that uh, we're going to see people making a choice between cheap grace and costly grace. And it's going to be two young men we're going to encounter. One of these young men, uh, Matthew, in his account of this story, tells us he's young. Luke, in his account of the story, tells us he's rich. Uh, I mean, tells us he's a ruler. And all three tell us he's rich. He's a wealthy young man. We call him the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler is going to become a case study in keeping everything for himself. And so it goes like this, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, uh, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. This is the rich young ruler. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a question right there. Christianity is the only religious system in the world that gives you assurance that you can have eternal life after you die and go to heaven. And uh, he's asking... His understanding of eternal life would be when the Messiah brings the rule of the kingdom of God to our world and justice finally comes and war is no more and evil is defeated and the rule of God comes. Um, How can I be a part of that? Well, you know the commandments, Jesus responded. Uh, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud or cheat. And honor your father and mother. So what Jesus does is list five of the Ten Commandments. He lists those five that have to do with how we treat other people. And he lists them and he says, okay, you want to be a part of my rule in the world? You want eternal life? Then he said, 
don't murder people, stay faithful to your wife, don't steal things from people, any ads in, don't cheat people. And this guy responds, teacher, he declared, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. We're going, right. But in a wealthy young Jewish home, these things were highly esteemed. I keep the Ten Commandments. And at least, at least it would be common to delude yourself into saying, yeah, I, I don't murder people and, and I don't steal from people. And, and some of them, you know, it would be true of many, many people. So he says, teacher, all these I've kept since I was a boy. I'm good with all that. And Jesus looked at him. Oh, man, when I mouth off to Jesus and he looks at me. <sighs> Trouble. But here's what it says. He loved him. He looked at him and loved him. He saw the potential. He saw somebody who, at his core, seemed to have a spiritual hunger. And he looked at him and loved him. And then he said, one thing you lack. You left one thing off your list. Go, sell everything you have, and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And at this, the man's face fell. And he went away, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, nowhere in this picture are people happy at this moment. The disciples are not happy because Jesus, you just let our biggest potential donor get away <laughs> on what they considered a technicality. I mean, give away everything? I mean, how, just tell them to give away a third. That'd be enough. And then, boy... So the disciples are not very happy, and this guy goes away sad because that's the one thing he couldn't do. At one level, the question was, um, okay, you're not hurting people. You're keeping the Ten Commandments. You don't murder people. You don't steal from people. You don't lie to people. You don't cheat people, and, and you're honoring your mother and father. So you're not hurting people. But the other part of that is, okay, you're technically not hurting people, but what are you doing to help people? And Jesus said, you know, just sell it all and, and let's start helping some people. Give it to the poor. But it goes even deeper than that. At the bottom line, Jesus is getting to what owned his heart. Who or what owns our hearts? And our hearts are all owned by someone or something. Who owns your heart? And this is a specifically hard one because he's talking about his money, his health. There are other places where Jesus will say, look, um, if you're going to follow me, you, you need, he gives money almost God-like status. Because God wants to say, I'm your security. Money wants to say, no, I'm your security. Uh, God wants to say, I'll give you joy. Money wants to say, I'll make you happy. I mean, Jesus goes so far as to say elsewhere, you cannot serve money and God. You've got to choose between the two. It's like money has this has this incredible power to own us. We, we, we go thinking. I, I mean, this poor young, this, this rich young ruler, I mean, he, he thinks he owns his wealth, and Jesus is saying, no, you don't own your wealth. Your wealth owns you. And you'll sell everything else out for that. And the question is, what really owns your heart? 
And um, Jesus bears down on this because he knows his disciples are frustrated at this moment and he's gonna make them more frustrated uh, right here. Jesus looked around and said to, so he looks around and his disciples are going, like, what do we do at this moment? There he goes. He just left us with all that money. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. He said, it's just flat out hard if you're rich to enter God's kingdom. Because the more you have, the more potential there is that you'll be owned by what you have. And so, verse 26, the disciples were even more amazed. And they said to each other, I mean, they're just, what? Well, well then, how can anybody be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things, all things are possible. I'm able to supersede the most powerful thing in this world that could own your heart. And I can replace it by my power, but it's not easy. My background's in engineering. I love science, studied science for nine years in higher education. And, um, you know, people say, well, how can you study science and believe in God? Don't most scientists not believe in God? Well, I love what Henry Schaefer, who's a leading physical chemist in the world, says. He does a lot in quantum theory. And he came to Christ as a professor at Stanford University. He writes, you know, we, we have this myth that that a, a smaller percentage of scientists believe in God than a cross-section of the American population. He says, he said, actually, the percentage is a little lower, but not that much lower. The percentage of scientists that don't believe in God is just a little bit lower than the percentage of Americans that don't believe in God. He said, what we found is the, the correlation that actually works is not how much science or how much education you have, it's how much money you make. Because people in the scientific world become engineers, become scientists, they tend to be at a higher socioeconomic level than everybody else. And we see this in nations all over the world. Those nations that tend to be wealthier are the nations where atheism is at the highest. It's not that you're more educated. It's not that you like science. It's exactly what Jesus said. Money is that powerful. It's that powerful. In fact, it becomes very hard for people groups who are wealthy to become fervent Jesus lovers because that's how powerful money can be, he says. You see, money can redefine the meaning of life. Money can reduce our value as human beings to a number. Money can lock us into an earthly value system. Money can give us a false sense of security. Money can keep us selfish. Money can blind us to the mission of Jesus. Jesus wants to bind our hearts to his mission, but money will blind, blind our hearts to his mission. Money is powerful, Jesus is saying, and it's really hard for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. But with God, all things are possible. Whatever may own your heart, I can overcome it. It doesn't happen with this rich, young ruler. But Jesus said, I can do this. So while we're on the subject, let's just camp here a moment. And you know, we don't talk a lot about money in our church except thanking you for giving to our footprint fund, which is our missions fund. But 
where, where do we start when it comes to our money then? Where do we start? I love what Jacques Ellul wrote years ago in his little classic, Money and Power. There's one act par excellence which profanes or dethrones money by going directly against the law of money. An act for which money is not made. That act is what? Giving. And give it away. Defy money's power in your life by giving it away. And uh, this is where the Bible goes. Now, will Jesus, when you come to Jesus, does he ask you to empty your bank account and liquidate all your assets and give them away in order to be a follower of Jesus? Does Jesus ask everybody what he asked of this young man? And the short answer is no. Not literally. We don't, we don't see this as the history of the church unfolds after Jesus dies and resurrects. Um, in the book of Acts, you don't see people automatically realizing, if I give my life to Jesus and follow him, I need nothing. I don't, I don't believe the, the New Testament necessarily promises everybody to get rich, but neither does the New Testament or Jesus preach a theology of poverty. But he does go right for what controls your heart and what owns your heart. Remember this young man, that was the make-or-break thing. Above even loyalty to God and eternal life, his money owned him. And so, um, for all of us who do, in Western culture, own a fair amount, um, this becomes the question. No, Jesus apparently doesn't ask everybody to do this. But, but, but listen to me really closely here. God won't ask for what you don't have either but he will ask for what you want to keep for yourself because he doesn't want anything else owning your heart. And the scripture, I, interestingly enough, does give us a kind of baseline, not a top lid, but a baseline at least for how we confront money's power in our lives by giving it away. And that's, that's this interesting percentage, 10%, means tithe, or tithe, tithe 10%. And we find it going all the way back. A lot of Christians argue, well, does a follower of Jesus need to tithe? Here's how I look at it. It's a principle that's rooted way back before any laws were written about giving money away, before anything. All the way to Abraham, all the way to Genesis, the first book of the Bible in chapter 14. Abraham's family had been kidnapped. They were human trafficking his kids. And he was desperate, so he grabbed some of his friends to go on a rescue mission to get his family back. And it turns out to be a military miracle that he comes back with his family intact. As he's coming back, he runs into a guy who's identified as a high priest, a priest. A priest kind of helps us between us and God. And he's a priest, and his name is Melchizedek. I love saying that word, Melchizedek. You're just bored someday, just start saying Melchizedek. 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 And the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament makes a case in chapter 7 that Melchizedek is an Old Testament picture of Jesus. He's not Jesus, but he's the Old Testament picture of Jesus. For he says in verse 1 of Hebrews 7, this Melchizedek was king of Salem, or king of Shalom, and priest of the God Most High. And he met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings that had kidnapped his kids and blessed him. Verse 2, first, he says the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Does that sound kind of like Jesus? King of righteousness. 
And he was king over the city of Salem, Shalom, which means peace. So here you have the king of righteousness who is king over peace, the city of peace. And without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he reigns a priest forever. We know Jesus is eternal. And, and he's saying it's interesting that Melchizedek shows up. We don't know where he came from. We don't know. We're not told who his mom and dad were. We're not told what happens to him after. We don't know when he died, where he died. We don't know. It's almost like you could think he had no beginning and no end. It's all a picture of the eternal Christ. And uh, he's the king of righteousness. And he rules into, and he brings peace to everywhere he rules. This is Jesus. And he's saying in in Hebrews 7, that Melchizedek is the picture in the Old Testament of the Jesus we've worshipped today. And then this amazing statement, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Abraham gave him a tenth. As one friend of mine, pastor friend of mine likes to say, hearts who encounter God respond with a tenth. Hearts touched by God respond with a tenth. And this is before, hundreds of years later till Moses writes laws about this, giving a tenth. You'll give your first part in ten to acknowledge that God's your provider and he owns everything in your life. It's a way of worship later, a way of honoring God. But here's Abraham and nobody is, I mean, he, there's no law to obey here. This is his instinctive reaction. If, if God is bringing me this freedom and this victory in my life, I'm going to respond with a tenth. His grandson Jacob is starting out on a whole new adventure and he prays just before he starts. Like his grandfather, he said, Lord, if you're prospering me on my way, I'll give you 10% of everything you bless me with. And so this idea, when you ask, is, is Jesus going to do a rich young ruler on you? Uh, he will with everything that controls your heart. It may not, like this rich young ruler, means selling all your property and living in poverty, but it does mean that there is a starting point with our money that God has given us. It's right there. And it's with the tithe. I know that may seem like a lot of money. I've done it for years, but the tithe, that's, that's what, like, it supported the temple in the Old Testament. It helps support the church in the New Testament. So we have little babies that are growing up here. It helps us to have, to, to have ministry staff. It helps us have youth pastors like Pastor Chris here. It helps us to nurture the world changers that are coming to build the kingdom of God. The tithe just resources the church. Thank God we have lights on because we could afford to pay the utility bill this month because of your generosity, because many of you tithe. It's that this is what makes it happen. And so we, we, we realize that money begins to defy uh, all of the evil intents that it can be a tool of, and it begins to resource the kingdom of God. And what you are doing whenever you tithe, I've written out tithe checks, and I've gone, ah, this hurts. You know, if you've never done it before, it can seem like an awful lot of money. But I've seen it over and over and over again. If your heart has been touched by Jesus and you start re responding with a tenth, even with material possessions, given that they involve the one thing that Jesus gives almost godlike status to, say, you can't serve it and you can't serve me. Your tithe is saying, I defy the power of money to define me, to determine my wealth, or to own my heart. And at least you start there. Most of us, Jesus will not ask us to sell everything, but you start there. So, that's, that's the part of, that's the story of the guy who instead kept everything. 
But now, we're going to see a guy pipe up. He's kind of familiar to us. Here's a, here's a picture of somebody who left everything. I'm going to talk about leaving everything. This closes out the story for us. Then Peter spoke up. Having not liked anything that's gone on over the last hour. And Jesus just twisting their heads like, wow, he thinks so differently. Then Peter spoke up. What about us? We've left everything. Uh, Jesus, uh, by the way, did you notice? Unlike that twerp that just went off with all his money. We have left everything. Yoo-hoo. I encountered that verse when I was 26 years old. I was one month from graduating at the University of Minnesota. I was on my knees that morning. I used to have a single guy just kneel by my little single bed and, and read scripture, uh, usually a chapter a day. And so I'd read Mark 9 the day before. So today was Mark 10. This was nothing like I felt led to this. And Mark 10 has quite a bit of content in it, including this story. And I remember reading Mark Peter saying, what about us? We've left everything. And then I went on. And I had a really busy day. And so, as happens to me sometimes, I completely forgot what the Lord might have spoke to me that morning or what I read in God's word. As good as it is to still do that anyway, but I just forgot. I had so many things. Partly I was trying to finish scheduling the defense of my dissertation to get my PhD and it was going to be in a month and I was scrambling around finishing up some of the writing trying to schedule the professors that were going to be a part of my dissertation committee and uh, all morning for the first time I started uh, being just tormented about what I was going to do with my life next because I've been leading a little Bible study that had been three it was a Kyle group there's a bunch of Kyle leaders down here we love you guys um Little Kyle groups, all the way down to three at one point of us. But God gave us a spiritual breakthrough, and during the last three years, I was a graduate student. I was basically pastoring a campus ministry of 100 students. And I decided to stay. My advisor had said, Look, uh, if you want a job with the research we're doing, I'll get you a job anywhere in the country you want it. Just tell me where you want to live. I'll help you get a job there. It was Minnesota, and I know what Januarys are like there. I was thinking Southern California would be pretty nice. <laughs> but you know, I, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't leave that ministry. I just felt like God wanted And it was just a bunch of students. They would not pay me a paycheck much. I, I would just have to live by faith financially. I made less money my first year out of college than I, might, I did my last year as a student. There's something very wrong with that picture. <laughs> but God just... I just couldn't leave it, and so I decided I'm going to stay here. And that decision had not bothered me. I'm going to not get a job in engineering. I'm going to pastor this guy off a group. I'm going to become a pastor. And it didn't bother me until that day. And as the morning went on, it just got worse and worse. It's like these thoughts were coming to my head, like, Bradford, you're a fool, and you can't make a career out of your hobby. And just because you like ministry, a lot of people like ministry, but they're also business people and engineers and nurses and doctors. I mean, you can't do this. And, 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 and then I started thinking, you know what? 
you're just going to hurt the name of Jesus. People are going to think, they're going to have nowhere to put this. They're going to think you're just foolish. And it's going to reflect so bad on Christianity and all your non-Christian friends here. And it just became, it, it just became, I, I was standing in front of the mirror and I felt like slapping myself at one point that morning, like, snap out of it. I mean, what? You're going you're to throw away nine years of education and not be an engineer? What? And it was the first time this had ever happened. And then I got that afternoon, I had to go into the head of my department because he was also going to be on my dissertation committee that I'd have to defend in front of. And I didn't know him. I never had a class from him because I was in a different branch of Arrow, but, but, but I just had to go and do the calendar work. I went in his office. Okay, it's one month from now, 2.30 in the afternoon. He said, yeah, I'm free. We just did the schedule stuff. I turned around to walk out, and he said, in a really telling voice, some of you have heard me tell this story, uh, in a really telling voice, he said, by the way, Jim, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And my first thought was, you will in a million years never understand what I'm about to say to you. And number two, it's none of your business. I mean, I thought those things. <laughs> but I just said, and I was stumbling around to trying to find words that I totally secular non-Christian with no categories for this would understand. Thought about how this group I was leading grew big and, and I would want to maybe take a non-technical turn because you hear about engineers who take non-technical turns in their careers and go into management and stuff and said, so I'm going to go into management. I'm going to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And none of it worked. In the next few minutes, he just reamed me up one side and down the other. He told me the fool I was. He used guilt. He said, you realize how much money the state of Minnesota has put into your education and you're throwing it all away? I later thought I should have said, I should have said, do you realize how much the state of Minnesota gave your department because I chose to go to your school instead of another school? But I'm not sure that would have helped anyway if I thought to say that. And it was shocking. I was jolted. I was shocked. And, and uh, after this just going on, and on. Um, I was standing there. I felt so shamed. And I felt so bad that I'd made Christianity look so stupid to this guy. Like if Jesus' followers do that kind of thing, why would I ever want to follow Jesus? And uh, he ended by saying, but if that's what you want to do with your life, who am I to tell you differently? As of today, I've been doing that with my life for 44 years now. And I don't regret it. But I didn't feel like I was being clapped for in that moment. I didn't feel like a hero. I felt shamed. I felt awful. I was really stunned. I was going, you're right. In fact, when he'd been speaking to me, remember I was haunted with those thoughts for the first time all morning? When he was speaking to me, those words verbatim were coming out of his mouth. I almost had a moment where I thought, it's not him talking to me. And uh, I went out, started walking down the hall of the Arrow Building, and I was slouched. I was feeling awful. It was not a victorious moment. And all of a sudden, I sensed God's Spirit speak to me. I mean, it just came clear as a bell. And it was Peter's words that I forgot I had read that morning. Lord Jesus, what about us? We've left everything to follow you. It just came. Boom, like that. And then I sense the Spirit of God speak to me. When he calls you by your last name, you know you're in trouble. He said, it wasn't very empathetic. 
He said, Bradford, he said, you straighten your shoulders and you get your head up and don't you ever be ashamed of following me again. And that was a turning point in my life at 26 years old. I have never since that day been ashamed of following him, even though sometimes it's been pretty hard, even though at least two or three times I've taken pay cuts to go work where I felt God called me to. But I want to tell you, he said to me, don't you ever be ashamed of following me. And poor Peter, he's really having a pity party, actually. And Jesus responds by saying, do the math. Do the math. I said, really? Oh, you're giving up so much, huh? This is what you get. He said, truly I tell you, this is verse 29, next verse. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age of homes, of brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. You're going to have people beat up on you. And in the age to come, the very thing the rich young ruler first came asking Jesus about eternal life. When you don't let anything else own your heart but Jesus. And he said, I'll give you a hundred times as much. Well, I do not have a hundred homes and I don't have a hundred moms, just for the record, literally. But Jesus was saying, I know how to pour back. Partly he was talking about his church, this living church. Well, you will become like spiritual moms to some of these kids and spiritual dads to these kids. These kids will grow up with hundreds of spiritual moms and dads because they're a part of Jesus' living church. But I especially like how Dr. John Piper put it. Surely what Christ means is that he himself makes up for every sacrifice. If you give up a mother's nearby affection and concern, you get back a hundred times the affection and concern from the ever-present Christ. If you give up the warm comradeship of a brother, you get back a hundred times the warmth and comradeship of Jesus. If you give up the sense of homeness that you had in your house, you get back a hundred times the comfort and security of knowing that your Lord owns every house and land and stream and tree on earth. In fact, Jesus says, I promise to work for you and to be for you so much that you will not be able to have spoken about sacrifice at all in the end. Can I hear an amen to that one? The beauty, the sufficiency of Jesus when you leave it all you get him.